0: Let's talk for a moment about when the gospel is under attack. So, you could stand with me as we kind uh, of read our anchor passage here. First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15:1 through 4, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. All right, so there's a little bit different approach for me this morning. Uh, Typically I uh, kind of pick a topic that I want to, uh, that I feel led to, to speak about and then kind of build around it. Uh, today I'm kind of going to take more of a direct approach. So there's a passage uh, that I really want to focus on and kind of see what we can uh, kind of dig into that and get out of that passage. This passage is in Galatians, the book of Galatians. Now our, our anchor passage is out of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, but most of where we'll be spending our time today is in the book of Galatians. I think context is important. So 1 Corinthians uh, kind of helps with that context. Uh, if I were uh, walking down the street or in public and someone walks up to me and says, uh, Hey, I just drugged someone, cut a hole in their side, and pulled out one of their organs, I- I'd kind of freak out and run and kind of find, you know, try to find some law enforcement or something, right? But if they had a white lab coat and, and a little tag that said, you know, Dr. Goodwin surgeon, maybe a, maybe a stethoscope around their neck, um, still a weird way to start a conversation, but maybe I wouldn't be quite, uh, you know, quite as concerned about that. So context is important, especially with it scripture. Even more important than you know meeting random doctors on the street. So um, I want to uh, give a little backstory for what we're looking at here in this book of Galatians. Uh, the book is not actually a book. Of course, the Bible is comprised of 66 books, all inspired, God breathed. But God used men to write uh, his word, okay? And so they wrote in different languages. They wrote in different formats. This particular format is in an epistle or a letter written to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, all right? This is what we know as modern-day Turkey. Uh, The Apostle Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries from the Church of Jerusalem around A.D. 46, approximately. Uh, after planting several churches in that area due to persecution, they were kind of driven out, and uh, a few years later, Paul gets uh, an update on these, uh, on these churches, and he is led by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to them. Uh, and this letter is intended to defend the faith, specifically the gospel. Now, Paul didn't plan on writing this letter. Okay, he, didn't, he wasn't like Luke. He didn't sit down and decide that he wanted to write an orderly account so that they might know the certainty of the things to which they were instructed. It wasn't like a pen pal type letter. He just didn't hey, you hey, know, I think I want to tell them a little more about the gospel. I'm going to sit down, uh, sit down and write this letter to them. This letter to these churches was actually a point of contention for Paul. Paul was angry. Paul was upset. Paul was frustrated. Paul didn't want to write this letter. He had to, because Paul was being attacked. Okay, and let me, let me back up for a minute. Paul wasn't one of those guys that was like easily offended. Okay? He, he wasn't one of those guys who really cared much about what people thought of him. He cared about what God thought of him. And so if it was just a personal attack on Paul, you know, whatever, his stature, his life, everybody paints him to be bald, so I don't know if he was or not, but, you know, if it was a personal attack on his physical, a physical appearance, if it was attack on that, or, or how he kind of lacked social skills, or uh, he kind of was, was brash when he spoke to people sometimes, if it was a personal attack on Paul, he probably wouldn't have cared that much. Maybe this letter wouldn't have even been written if that's all it was. But this attack had an ulterior motive. The attack was actually on the message that Paul had presented to these these churches, and that message was the gospel. Their motive was to destroy that message, and they thought the best way to destroy that message was by discrediting the messenger. They were trying to spread their version of the gospel and needed Paul out of the way to do so. So I want to break this down kind of in in three sections here. I want to first look at the message and what that message is, what it means to us, the messenger, who Paul was and kind of what this situation uh, meant in regard to him, and then talk about the defense of the gospel, the defense of this message. So the message, what's the message here? It's simple. The message is the gospel. So what's the gospel? We hear the gospel all the time, right? Literally translated, it's the good news. And that might not sound that impressive to you, but I want to call your attention to that three-letter word there at the beginning of that phrase. It's the good news. Sister Christina, if I told you that today you get to go home and have a nap and rest undisturbed, have a peaceful afternoon, that'd be good news to you, right? But it's not the good news, okay? Okay. Brother Tobin, if I told you you won season tickets to the Cardinals, you have access to the Redbird Club climate-controlled seating, that would be good news for you, right? Yeah. But it's not the good news. It's not the good news. The good news is in our original text. It says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There's so much in this relatively short passage. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, didn't just die, but He died for a purpose, to cover our sins. He was the only one who could pay that price. We know that according to the Scriptures. He wasn't just buried, but He rose again. He conquered death, keeping His promise, just as He said, According to the scriptures. This is the good news. When Paul refers to the gospel, that's what he's talking about. Nothing more, nothing less, but all sufficient. This is the message that is under attack in Galatia. So we'll jump ahead a bit to verse six of chapter one. We'll come back uh, to the beginning there and kind of touch on that as well. But Galatians one, six through seven says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I'm dumbfounded. Okay, My mind is blown that you are turning away from the gospel so soon. It wasn't that long ago that I was just here telling you about it. Okay, he, He's just beyond himself right here. And he says, by the way, there is no other gospel. I have to say that for this, in this context, that you're turning to another gospel, but I want you guys to understand there's not another one. The gospel is only through Jesus Christ. He mentions it in this verse twice, from him who called you in the grace of Christ and those that want to pervert the gospel of Christ. In our southern translation, if it ain't got Jesus in it and only Jesus in it, it ain't real. It's fake. It's an imposter. It's a wannabe. Jesus said himself in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not me and my good deeds. Not me and my religious rituals. Not me and my offering. Not me and my grandparents who have always been to church. Me. Jesus plus nothing, minus nothing. That's as clear as Paul could get. And when Paul says there's someone troubling the churches in Galatia and perverting the gospel of Christ, how are they doing that? Let's jump over to Acts chapter 15. This is from the account of the Jerusalem council where the apostles finally met, discussed this matter, and put it to rest. But this meeting is believed to have happened, uh, taken place a short, short while after this letter was actually written to the churches at Galatia. But Acts 15.5 says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They were teaching Jesus plus Jewish rituals, including circumcision, keeping the Jewish law, equaled Justification. They were teaching that salvation was through Jesus and works. These false teachers were Pharisees, many of them highly educated, just as Paul was. Some of them were believers. It says, Pharisees who believed. They were saved, but they were so attached to their Jewish customs that they just couldn't let them go. What they failed to realize is that God implemented those customs and those laws. He did so for a reason and for a specific time. That time had ended, and the reason was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was the answer to the who, what, where, when, why, and how of all of this. Jesus was everything. The only way we are to be justified before God, to be declared innocent, was by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul continues to relay his bewilderment that the churches of Galatia would believe anything contrary to the justification of faith In Christ alone, he uses some pretty strong language here, and he could probably pick up a little bit of sarcasm here as well. Galatians 3, "'O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I have to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish?' Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Paul wasn't unclear in his message. He didn't speak in code. He didn't give them a riddle that they had to somehow figure out. He presented the gospel exactly how it had been presented to him, by the author of salvation, the creator of the gospel. What higher authority could you ask for? If you couldn't tell by this point, Paul's pretty worked up. He's upset at this point. I'm sure if he was with the Galatians face to face, this would not be a calm or quiet interaction. Just see that exclamation point there behind, oh, foolish Galatians? He's he's pretty fired up at this point. Now, we don't use the term foolish much um, in our everyday language, right? We would more likely use the term stupid, okay? So Paul is saying here, you stupid Galatians, have you lost your mind? Who has brainwashed you? Who has tricked you? Did you completely miss the cross? Did you look right past it? He says, let's just think back to the beginning. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive your salvation through faith? Or did you receive it through the law? Did you receive it through trusting in Jesus? Or did you receive it by following this set of rules? Obviously, it was from trusting in Jesus. He tells them, are you so stupid that you think that your salvation started with faith, but somehow now it's magically based on works? Paul is really fired up at this point. This is one of the moments when you're trying to find like this place in the room to kind of not make eye contact because just everybody there is uncomfortable. Paul wants these churches to understand the message hasn't changed. It was the same as when he first presented it to them. It will always be the same. If he asked their children's children's children what the gospel was, they should give the same answer. So, so let's wait for a minute. So I know what you're thinking. We're here. We're now in 2019. You're telling me that this message is 2,000 years old, It hasn't changed a bit. It's still relevant, and we should still believe it. First of all, the message is more than 2,000 years old. This message goes back to the beginning. Adam was saved by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. Moses was saved by faith. Noah was saved by faith. The woman at the well was saved by faith. Paul was saved by faith. Jason Goodwin was saved by faith. The message of redemption through Jesus Christ and Him alone was, is, and will be the same until the end of the age when we're in our eternal home and that message is no longer needed. This new breed of Pharisees knew the message that Paul preached was simple. They knew it was through Christ alone, but they just couldn't let go of their traditions. They had to be under conviction. They just had to be, at least the ones that were saved. But misery loves company, company equals power, so they had to get everyone else on board, or at least try to, They knew they would have a hard time convincing the church that Paul's version was incorrect, theirs was correct, especially when Paul presented it so simply and directly. So what was left for them to do but discredit the messenger? If they could discredit the messenger, they could discredit the message. So here we are, Paul, the messenger, is under attack. What better way to discredit the messenger and his message than to undermine his authority? Why should I listen to him? What does he know? Who does he think he is? Is he just making this up? Does any of this sound familiar to us today, here and now? They said he's not even a real apostle. He doesn't meet the qualifications. Why should we believe anything he has to say? They actually have a point here. Let's look at the qualifications of an apostle. Just real quickly, a little side, sidebar here. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostello, meaning one sent by the king with the authority of the king. In other words, the king himself appointed and sent out his messenger. The qualifications, you can look at them, uh, look them up in Acts 1. Uh, but they are, they accompanied. if you accompany Jesus throughout his ministry, like Jesus was your pastor. All right. They were there with him through his baptism by John, and his resurrection, and his ascension. They were, here, they were there the whole time. That was the qualification of an apostle. Paul didn't meet those requirements. If you recall, Paul or Saul at the time was busy persecuting this church. He was trying to destroy everything that had to do with Jesus. Yet he opens his letter with a clear proclamation of his title. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches at Galatia. He immediately sets himself apart from the other brethren in his company. But how can he do this? We just established that he doesn't meet the qualifications for an apostle. Let's look at what Paul had to say about that. We skip forward to verse 12, 11 and 12 says, but I make known to you brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor I was taught it nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We skip down to verse 15, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I don't know if you called all of what Paul is saying here or not, but Paul saying God chose me, before I was born and not only did he choose me before I was born but when he made that calling known to me he sent me to the Arabian Desert Seminary for three years my professor was this guy some of you may know him he goes by the name of Jesus Christ he was taught specifically by Jesus Christ for three years so take that Pharisees right Paul was not influenced by other apostles. He did not derive the gospel himself using his intellect or information that he had heard from others. The gospel he presented was pure and straight from the source. Anybody ever bought those bottles of water that say, bottled at the source? Right? That always weirds me out because I think of like, the employees like standing under a waterfall and filling up a bottle and passing it back and like picking out sticks and bugs and stuff. And then, So it doesn't do much for me, but it sells, that slogan sells water. Why does it sell water? Because it speaks to the authenticity and the purity. It came straight from the source. There's nothing in between the water and the bottle. The same goes here. There's no middleman. This isn't a telephone game where the message at the end comes out completely different than when it started. In our anchor text, Paul says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. It was bottled at the source See, Paul was every bit of an apostle as Peter, James, and John. Jesus was his pastor, his professor, his redeemer. The truth of the gospel, including the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and all the rest of Jesus' ministry, was revealed to Paul directly. The message was given to him by the King with full authority, the same authority as the other apostles. Paul was the last of his kind. He was just born at a little bit different time than the others. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 8, it says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So what does this mean to us? Can we be apostles? No. However, as messengers of the gospel, which we are, if we know Christ as our Savior, either in some pastoral role, or just the ministry of reconciliation in general, as spoke of in 2 Corinthians 5, we have authority in the word. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This message is given directly from the king and carries all of his authority. We don't have apostles with us today, but we have something even better. Second Peter 1, 19 through 21 says, So we have the prophetic word confirmed. King James Version says a more sure word, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12 says, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Our authority is found in the gospel message led by the Holy Spirit. As messengers, do you think we could be under attack sometimes? Absolutely. First John 3.13 says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. John 15.18-21 says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. So what do we do when the gospel is under attack, if we are under attack, let's look again at what Paul has to say. If you haven't picked this up already, the gospel according to Paul is the gospel according to Christ. The attack, to attack Paul is to attack his message, the gospel. To attack the gospel is to attack the provider of the gospel, God himself. This is why Paul is so upset. These false teachers were attacking God. Now, God doesn't need our protection. The gospel doesn't need us to prop it up. It can stand on its own. We don't need to be a shield around the gospel to protect it from outside forces. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God. Us trying to protect that would be like a flea trying to protect an elephant. It's just not necessary. What we're talking about when we talk about defense of the faith or defending the gospel, we're more talking about defending those who have accepted the gospel message or those who will potentially accept the gospel message, keeping that message from being uh, distorted, keeping them from being deceived or led astray. We're making sure that the message remains pure and there's not an imposture that's uh, trying to be passed off as the true gospel. So let's go back to the beginning of the letter. Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul kicks off this letter to defend the gospel with a presentation of the gospel. The gospel isn't weak or defenseless. The gospel doesn't need a bodyguard. I think it's fitting that God's response to this attack was a presentation of the gospel. He actually addresses every accusation made against him and the gospel message in the first sentence of the letter. I like how he also throws in that grace there in verse 3, knowing he is writing a letter to people who are essentially fighting a battle against grace. Grace isn't grace if you have to earn it. That's called wages. And we don't want to get into a discussion about wages. Getting what we're rightfully owed? Is that really what we want? Romans 4, 4 and 5 says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think we want what we're owed. These Pharisees, I don't think they knew what they were asking for. The best defense of the gospel is the gospel itself. Helping that person understand what the one true gospel message is will disarm any advances against it. There's one thing I want us to grasp today is the importance of the gospel message, the purity of the gospel message, the singularity of the gospel message. There is only one. There's not another gospel. One and only. When, God, when Jesus paid that price for us, it was a one-time deal. When we accept that gift, it's a one-time deal. Nothing we can do can destroy that or, or, or lose that. There's nothing we can do bad enough. or we can, if, we, if we fail to do enough good things... There's nothing we can do to discredit that gospel message once you've accepted it. That should give you some peace, right? John 16, 33 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you, have had tri- you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The gospel brings Peace. The gospel brings security. There is no peace in a gospel that I have to supplement. There's no peace in a gospel that depends on my successes or failures. I can't do it. I'm going to fail. Our, our culture just hammers this into our head. You'd be a self-made man. You can do this all yourself. you just stand, lift yourself up by your bootstraps. It's all you. You can do it. You can't do it. You cannot save yourself. It's a lie that the enemy gives you. You cannot save yourself in whole or in part. Jesus doesn't need your help to save you. And frankly, the thought that I should be able to help Jesus save me is arrogant and conceited on my part and flies in the face of the price that God paid on the cross. The simplicity and sufficiency and pure expression of love that flows from the blood of Christ is our only hope. And what a hope it is. Romans eight thirty one says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you're on Jesus' side... Congratulations, you won. It's not because you fought a good battle. It's not because you trained really hard. It's because of what Christ did solely and completely. Jesus minus nothing plus nothing is everything. There's one thing I hope you get today. That is the gospel message. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he rose he was buried rose again on the third day according to the scriptures plain and simple that's it i hope you've experienced i hope you i hope you've understood that gospel message today if you haven't i'd love to speak with you about it it's so so simple but so complex at the same time so amazing that he stepped in our place when we deserved to die. That wages thing, we don't, we don't want what we deserve. But by saying that we're going to add to the gospel and I need to kind of help it out, you're saying that it's not enough. And, that I, and, and some, somehow it depends on me for my salvation. You're not going to make it. Jesus plus nothing, minus nothing, is everything. Y'all pray with me.